Alright, I want to welcome you guys to Grace Bible Church. I'm Tim. I'm uh, the junior high and local outreach pastor at Temple Bible Church just down the road. Uh, first of all, I said this last hour, I, I'm just blown away by this contraption here. You can see it, it's like a bass drum and a tambourine and he's doing two different feet. Well, I'd, I'd be a mess trying to do that. It's Yeah, it's computer generated. Uh, that's the only way I'd be able to do it. Uh, <coughs> but that was pretty amazing. Uh, so I'm glad to be here. Glad uh, Pastor Dave asked me to join you guys this morning. We're going to be looking at John uh, chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. John chapter 19. We're doing a series in the book of John uh, over there at TBC. So uh, this is a passage that fell to me as I got to share it with our home church there. And so I get to share it with you guys as well. Uh, Pastor Gary gave the uh, previous sermon to this passage, and he was talking about um, Jesus and the trial before Pilate. And I love how he put uh, the title where he was talking about Jesus before Pilate, and he kind of flipped it and said, uh, really, what, what I believe this to be, if you look at the interaction between Jesus and Pilate, it was really Pilate before Jesus. Jesus was talking and and really it was Pilate was the one who was somewhat on trial, so to speak, where Jesus was responding to him with questions of authority and questions of who is king and who is, who is true and what is truth and all these things. And he kind of flipped it on him and he, he identified Pilate as one who was convicted and challenged, but he was unchanged. But my prayer today is that after looking at the details of the crucifixion, you'll find yourself convicted challenged and forever changed because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful to be together as the body of Christ. We're thankful that we have this time to be in your word, Lord, your, your precious word that's been given to us, Lord, that speaks to us, that your Holy Spirit who guides us, I pray that Holy Spirit, you will show us things about your crucifixion, maybe that we didn't realize before, or things that we've taken for granted, or things that uh, we just need to be reminded of. We thank you for what you're going to do today. In your name we pray. Amen. So we live in a culture today that bases a lot of decisions and actions on feeling. I don't know if you experience that much. Maybe you're like that, where maybe your life is like a roller coaster. And some people, their emotions, the roller coaster is like a kiddie ride. But some of you, it's like Six Flags, you know, major crazy ride, roller coasters up and down. Because we often base our decisions on feelings instead of facts, and we react to things that happen. And it kind of bleeds over, unfortunately, in, in how we approach Christianity. And we, we kind of say things like, well, I'm not certain, or I, I can't know, and and we question, and, and questioning isn't wrong at all. Questioning hopefully leads you to a better understanding of what God has done and the story that God is continuing to develop within our own lives and the body of Christ and the world at large. But I do want you to know that there are facts. There are things that you can rest on, things that you can trust in, and it's not just some feeling when it comes to our walk with Jesus. So I'll hit you with a few of these facts this morning to hopefully strengthen your faith as we begin our time together. You know, there are 332 prophecies written about Jesus in the Old Testament. 332. 
Specifically, just to his death, there are 60 prophecies just about Jesus' death. And the odds of anyone fulfilling this many prophecies is astronomical. I'm not a numbers guy, but I trust in people that are numbers guys. My dad uh, majored in math at the Naval Academy, and I didn't get any of those genes. So uh, he was fascinated with math and numbers, and I just hope that the people are right that do the research. So this guy that wrote about this topic of the odds of Jesus fulfilling prophecies is an interesting author, but when we think about the odds here, it kind of reminds me of the Mega Millions that was real big uh, just a week and a half ago. You don't have to raise your hand if you actually played it, but your odds of winning $1.6 billion were 1 in 302 million. Those were your odds if you laid that money down for a ticket, one, in 302 million. Now, those sound like crazy odds, right? But some dude in South Carolina played them, and uh, I guess one. One in 302 million. But if you look at the odds of one person fulfilling only eight of these prophecies, we mentioned it's 60 about his death, only eight are one in 10 to the 17th power, that is, one in 100 quadrillion. I didn't even know that was a number. One in 100 quadrillion. You can see all those numbers, those zeros after that. This Dr. Peter Stoner, a statistician and mathematician that did this research. He goes on to say, this, this doctor says, it's kind of like this. If you picture a silver dollar here, and I don't know about you, but I visually, it helps me understand things a lot better when I see things in pictures. I'm a junior high pastor, so that it works great uh, with, with kids like that as well. But silver dollars, he brought up the idea that this, this is the math that you can do with this. If you took the state of Texas and filled the state of Texas up two feet deep with silver dollars, and you put an X on one silver dollar, and then you had someone like Stephen or Paul or some of the people I know here, we got them up front here and we blindfolded them, we took them out front, and we said, all right. You can go anywhere you want in the state of Texas, take all the time you need, but you can only bend over once to pick one silver dollar up, and you better hope you pick the X. The same odds of you doing that, blindfolded, are the same odds of one human being fulfilling only eight of these prophecies. We can see in Scripture, in prophecy, in history, that Jesus fulfilled these eight. And even in our passage today, just in these 20 verses from the book of John, he fulfilled eight of these prophecies in this passage alone. But taking it out even further, the odds of fulfilling all 60 is one in 10 with 157 zeros after it. Couldn't even fit the zeros on the screen. Or I just didn't want to type zero, 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 zero. So the idea is crazy. This astronomical numbers that Jesus himself would come as a man and fulfill all these prophecies. So let's look at the passage together. Verse 17 in John 19. They took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. 
It was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So it's a pretty powerful situation that we're going to look at today, the crucifixion of Jesus. And thinking about those prophecies, you can also realize by studying uh, some of the background here that of all the prophecies in other religions, all other religions, there's lots of so-called prophecies. There's only one that actually has come true. It's that Muhammad would go back to Mecca. That was it. Of every single prophecy that has been studied of other religions, here it is, just one. And here we have Jesus fulfilling eight in only this passage alone, which is a powerful thing. So we're just going to look at this scripture kind of as we go here, as it's it's uh, read, and as we just read it, we're going to look at some details in different sections of the scripture. But we have to understand some background here. At the time of Jesus' arrest, uh, the Israelites, they were under Roman uh, occupation. So the Jews didn't really have the authority to put Jesus to death. They had to seek Roman authority. And so the, the Israelites back then, they were functioning in, if they were doing capital punishment, it would be stoning. And so they would kill someone by stoning, but because it was Roman authority, again, uh, fulfilling scripture, Roman authority had crucifixion as their choice. And if you look at that and you even look in, at a history of crucifixion, you realize that crucifixion was, wasn't anything new. It wasn't in the New Testament alone. You can go back to the Old Testament, to the Medes and the Persians and the Egyptians, and, and they practiced in varying ways acts of crucifixion. But the Romans were known as the people that perfected it. It sounds kind of sick and morbid. But the Romans were the ones that kind of took it from here 
up a couple notches to a whole nother level of humiliation and persecution and eventual death. And so here we have Jesus being arrested and being sentenced to death by crucifixion. So the first section we come upon in verse 17 to 24, I'm just calling the cross, the crowd, and the craziness. We got a, a little bit of everything happening here in the cross. And if you look at the details of this passage, you'll notice a lot of things that go back to the Old Testament. And if you really study the life of Jesus, you can't study the life of Jesus without really looking at the Old Testament and seeing all the things that match up with the way he lived and carried things out. And the cross is no exception. When we think about the wooden cross and the cross that Jesus carried, it brings us back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Some of you may know that story. You might remember it where God asked Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his own son, his only son, who he had waited so long to have, had at an old age, and here he is, go ahead and take him up on this mountain and kill him. And Abraham's like, I'll obey. I don't understand this. And what did he have Isaac do? He had Isaac go and gather the sticks and the wood to sacrifice him on and Isaac had no clue his son had no clue but here he is carrying what would be his own altar and in this same way Jesus had this wooden cross on his back carrying his own form of his execution and it goes back all the way to the Old Testament here Galatians 3:13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written, written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that statement is from Deuteronomy 21, 23. Jesus bore the curse for us. The curse that came from being hung on a tree. And then we have a crowd represented here. Uh, we have to understand in, in this time period, in this specific time of year, this was a huge commotion. This wasn't any old Sabbath. This was the Passover. This is people coming from all over, family and friends, joining together in this celebration of Passover. And so in the city, they're going in and out on this main road to the city. And this is where we see Jesus. They gather at the place of the skull. And it's interesting for us to notice, uh, sorry, we can go back to Hebrews 13. It says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So even in those sacrifices, after the, the blood was spilt, they weren't burned right there. They were taken outside the city. And so here we have Jesus outside the city as the sacrificial lamb on the cross. And if you look at this image here called the place of the skull, you can look to the right and upper right there, and you actually see pretty obvious what they're talking about, right? It's not just the place of the skull because that's where people died. It was the place of the skull because it was literally a skull that looked like a skull carved into the side of that mountain. Not by human hands, but it just the way it, it, it eroded. And even the nose of uh, some guys from our church, elders and pastors, went to Israel recently. And the, the nose that you see there has since fallen off uh, that you would see even going, going there to this day. 
But there's a road that goes in and out of the city in the pla- at the place of the skull, and you would be a passerby and not miss this. It wasn't like some tiny occurrence where he was crucified with nobody even really knowing anything about it. There's just a couple people there with his family. This was a big deal, and anybody that didn't even know what was going on would have passed in and out of this city and seen what was happening. It's important for us to see this because the crowds would have seen the sign, the sign that was placed above his head. You can see in this passage where it says in verse 20, 21, 22, where even the the Jewish leaders are trying to, again, try to manipulate Pilate to say certain things, and, and Pilate finally puts his foot down, and he's like, no, what I, set, what I put, I put. I'm not changing this. This was like Pilate's last form of control here, saying, I'm not going to say he said he's king of the Jews. I'm going to say king of the Jews, which is a powerful, powerful observation. Because as people came in and out to participate in this Passover, guess what they were seeing? In Greek, in Latin, in Aramaic, you know what they're seeing? Jesus, King of the Jews. A proclamation above his head as he died on that cross. Jesus, King of the Jews. What a powerful billboard to who he said he was and what he ended up being. So it's a crazy thing that was happening back then. And even at the the mention of gambling at the foot of the cross. You had these soldiers who were gambling for his clothes. And actually, if you look at history, you realize this wasn't an uncommon thing. They actually gambled often for the clothes of the people that were going to be crucified. So here they are gambling for Jesus' clothes. But it's also important for us to note in this instance of his clothing that I think uh, the public portrayal of Jesus' death and the artist's portrayal of Jesus' death is, is in some ways pretty off. Uh, first of all, the pictures you see uh, did, did not reflect who Jesus was even in his skin color. Oftentimes we see him as a white man, which is, is, is wrong. If you look at him back then, he was actually darker skin than that. But on top of all that, you also see that because these images are displayed publicly, They're kind of cleaned up a little bit. And so you see Jesus with being covered, but the reality is Jesus wasn't covered. He experienced complete nakedness on that cross, the humility of hanging on a tree naked for you and me. And again, this goes back to the Old Testament. If you look at the story of Adam and Eve, the first sin that took place, what happened? they realized they were naked. This sin exposed them and helped them to see, you got to get some clothes on. All of a sudden, I feel this shame. And the power of this moment where Jesus is hanging on that cross, humiliated and naked, helps us to see that he took on our nakedness, the curse of nakedness to deliver us from it. In this shameful deed, God's prophetic word continues to come true. I don't know about you, but I grew up seeing uh, portrayals of Jesus' death. My dad's a pastor, been a pastor for 41 years up in Philadelphia. So I watched lots of remakes of the crucifixion on a stage and even here now, living in this area for a while, seeing at UMHB. 
at Easter time, and you see <clears throat> Jesus on the cross, you see some powerful images. And I know, I know for me, being a visual person, I, I try to identify and somewhat can see the pain. The crown of thorns, where the thorns are about this long, shoved down into his head. The beating that he took to his face. The ripping the shreds of his back when he was whipped before he went to the cross. The pain that he endured in so many ways. The, the nails in his wrists and his feet. And I know for me, oftentimes I stop there and I, I, I kind of settle there on that pain because physically we know pain, we feel pain, and that's kind of where we rest. But it's important for us not to stop in the physical because the spiritual was so much greater. The pain that Jesus endured on the cross physically was immense and horrible and nothing anybody should ever have to go through. But the spiritual pain of being rejected by his father was so much greater. And as I was thinking about that, it made me think about and remember a story from when I was little with my dad. And I don't know about you, but I don't remember lots of details when I was young. You know, some of you could probably remember like lots of things, but I kind of have a spotty memory, but this one I don't forget. I can almost remember the smell of what was happening then. My, my mom, my dad, we, they have four children. I'm the youngest of four, so there were times where, uh, you know, my dad would take us to the park, like on a nice day like today or yesterday where you just get outside. You got to get outside in this beautiful weather, right? And he'd take us to the park, and I always thought it was just like, because my dad loved spending time with me, but now that I'm a parent of four kids, I realize it's probably like my mom's about to kill us. So she's like, you better get him out of here quick, especially that Timmy kid. So I'm at the park with my family, and we're hanging out with the kids and uh, some of my friends, and there were some guys there, I don't know if they were late teens, early 20s, but these guys were doing some things that I don't even remember exactly what was happening, but... Uh, they're cursing or something, you know, saying things that are inappropriate around kids. And my dad, I never saw him really publicly, physically confront somebody. But he comes up to this dude that looks like the ringleader, and he's like, hey, you need to, you need to you know, take it on down the road here. This isn't appropriate for little kids. And this guy, basically, I don't know what he said, but obviously it wasn't the kindest words that he chose because my dad reacted by grabbing the guy in the back of the shirt and his long hair and throwing him out of the playground. Physically, like you get arrested today. He, and I talked to him last week about this, and he's like, yeah, I was actually concerned about getting arrested back then too. And uh, he chucked this guy out of the playground. And of course, these guys run off and they stand at the top of the hill at a distance and are like, you know, continuing their barrage. But at least they were far away. I know this sounds like a random story, and what does that have to do with this? What I thought about in those moments and remembering those moments was the, the closeness and the protection that I felt from my father that day, that I had this, this relationship that was looking out for me and, and this tight relationship and imagining that at a moment that relationship is severed, that he literally not only just doesn't see me, but he doesn't have any relationship with me. He cuts it off. 
And for some of you in this room, maybe you can identify with that better than some of us. You've had the pain of somebody cutting a relationship off, turning their back on you, never speaking to you again. And maybe you can understand this a little bit better. The fact that God, when Jesus was on that cross, had to turn his back on his own son. His only son. And he turned his back on him because he couldn't look on the sin that he was bearing for all of us. And in this moment, this immense moment of pain and suffering, the spiritual suffering was so much greater than the physical. And I know it's hard for me, maybe you, to imagine, but it's, it's a powerful thing. But we also see a scene here in verse 25 of friends and family at the cross. There are women mentioned at the cross. One in particular, Mary Magdalene, had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus, which made her a really devout follower of Jesus. It's also important to note that the 11 disciples left after Judas. Only one was mentioned being at the cross, the author of this book. Only one. But there's four women mentioned. It's pretty strong and powerful, the the faith and courage that these women had to be associated with Jesus at the foot of this cross when really they know they're taking their life in their hands. You know, due to unfortunate oppression and subjugation of women over the years, some people who claim to know Jesus and are leaders in the church have given Christianity a bad name. However, throughout Scripture, we can find the inclusion, the crucial roles, and the impact of women in the spread of the gospel and foundation of the church to this very day. Sometimes in church leadership, especially over our history, we've kind of taken this, uh, this, the writings of, of the authors of this book, and we've taken them and somehow created this subservient, secondhand, uh, kind of lower form of a woman in her role in the gospel. And if you look at the scene of the cross, you don't see that. If you look at true Christianity, you don't see that. It's a a time where, where men and women come together as a team, working together for the gospel's sake, and we see it represented here throughout, actually, Jesus' ministry. Peter, where was he? He was fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. You're going to deny me three times before this rooster even crows. James and John, well, John was writing this. But it's interesting when we look at James and John, if you look back at Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 37, is an instance where James and John get together and they're talking together, right, brothers. And they're like, hey, we should have a a special place with Jesus. And they even get mommy in on the action. And mommy comes to Jesus and is like, hey, paraphrase, you hook my sons up with a special place at your right hand and your left? And Jesus says to them, "Uh, you don't know what you're asking. I'm sure they're thinking, yeah, 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 I do. (laughs) I know exactly what I'm asking. I, I want a special place with you. But what Jesus was seeing was, you don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about my right and left, because I'm here on the cross, and where are you? Who is on his right and left? Criminals sentenced to die. And James and John 
We're asking to be on his right and the left. And after seeing this, and of course experiencing the resurrection, then they realize someday, oh wait, this is what he was talking about. And they will, will one day know what it means to sacrifice. So maybe it, it, it gives us this question. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? In this moment, we can see that they are visually seeing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Sometimes in our society, unfortunately, we see people that say they represent the gospel and they teach things that are false, like if you give this, if you serve here, if you follow me, your life will go well, things will be great, everything's going to be smooth and you'll get stuff and get prominent position, and you'll grow into this uh, better offering, you know, of life, your, your best life now, and the reality is this, when you follow Jesus, it means more pain. It means persecution. It means oftentimes suffering and being rejected by people. Now, don't get me wrong, it's the most amazing life you could experience on this earth, and, and it's it's blow your mind, experiences of, of love and peace, but it's also tough. And those that are at the foot of the cross are seeing it firsthand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then we see his family represented here. His family is represented. Uh, it's kind of an interesting interaction here with Jesus and his, and his mother here in verse 26 and 27. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he says to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's kind of interesting. It reminds me of uh, the, the wedding at Cana when Jesus did his first recorded miracle. And he turned the water into wine. And Jesus, you know, has his mom there, Mary, and they're at this wedding feast. And, and you know, just like any proud mom, Mary's like, I, you know, I got the man here. This is my son, and he can do some crazy stuff. And so I'm going to come up to him, and I'm going to be like, hey, the water, uh, the wine is gone. We need more. And she's like requesting a special miracle, right? And Jesus addresses her in an interesting way. He doesn't say, Mom. Mommy, mother, he says woman. And some people look at that and they're like, that's kind of disrespectful. If I called my mom woman, <laughs> I'd be in trouble. But he does that for a reason because he's helping her understand the separation here, that there is a difference between him just being her son. He's also the Savior. So he's functioning in a different way. And even from the cross here, he uses that same term and says woman. And he addresses John, behold, your son. And it's kind of interesting what is happening here. But it's also a sweet moment between mother and son because he's looking out for her. In this pain, in this persecution, in this difficulty, he thinks of his mother and he says, hey, John, take care of her. And from that day forward, he took her home and took care of her like his own. It's just a sweet, uh, powerful moment between a mother and a son, but it's important for us to know it wasn't just a mother-son, but it was also a Savior speaking to a child of God as well. There was a difference in their relationship, and so that's why he addressed her that way. 
It's also interesting to note that they were at the cross, but they didn't still yet fully believe. They had to believe seeing him die on the cross, but in the moments after this, if you do a little reading next, maybe this evening or this coming week, do some reading about the resurrection, they were still surprised when they came to that tomb to see it empty. So they're still in the process of this faith journey here of trusting that, yes, he really is the Son of God. In his book, Intimate Moments with a Savior, Ken Geyer writes concerning Mary at the foot of the cross. He says, but love never looked like this. Pools of blood beating the dirt beneath the cross, a heavy spike through the feet, ribs protruding against the skin, open wounds bothered by flies, eyes swollen with fever, hair matted from this morning's thorns. Hands raised to God on splintered wood, a slumped torso dangling from impaled wrists like some grotesque pendant. It is more than a mother can bear, but somehow she does, largely because of the man standing beside her, steadying her, John, the disciple Jesus loves. But not only is there family and friends here, we also see some crucial statements Jesus makes from the cross in verse 28 through 30. He makes some powerful statements, and the first one is, I thirst. I thirst is a powerful statement that fulfilled prophecy, but I think it goes deeper than what we imagine, just like uh, the spiritual suffering goes deeper than the physical. This thirsting is more than physical. And uh, Tim Keller helps us understand this a little bit better when he describes hell. He says in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says that no physical destruction can, can be compared with the spiritual destruction of hell, losing the presence of God. But this is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was forsaken by his Father. So we see here a thirsting that's not just described as physical thirst where uh, the sour wine was offered to quench his thirst, but it's a different kind of thirst that is happening here. The rich man uh, in the story of Lazarus had this thirst. It wasn't like some drop of water was going to quench that thirst that he was experiencing. Like, here, give me a cup, give me a gallon. That's really not going to quench that. It was this thirsting that existed because he was separated from God. When David speaks of this in Psalms, we see that he says, As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. This is the thirsting that's taking place because that relationship was severed at that moment. He turned his back on his son, and he was thirsting for that relationship with God. And not only did he, th- he say, I thirst, but he also says it is finished. Well, what was finished? It's three of the most powerful words in Scripture in verse 30. It is finished. Luke 23, 44 and 45 states, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We see another author, another disciple, Luke, taking a different perspective. Luke is a little more detailed, being a physician, so he gives these details about this afternoon when Jesus hung on the cross. And it's described as darkness that came over where you couldn't see anything. This darkness comes on you, and it's this heavy darkness. And it kind of uh, reminds us of, again, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were, were enslaved to the people of Egypt. 
And there were 10 plagues that God brought on, the, on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt to release these people from bondage. And the ninth plague is one of darkness. And it was described as this heavy darkness that you could feel. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I saw more smog than stars. But some of you maybe have experienced, you know, darkness and you've seen stars, but maybe there's cloud cover and you're out somewhere in the woods or something like that, or maybe in the military where you're in this dark place and you just can't see anything. It's just heavy. And that darkness that's felt is, again, not just a physical thing. It's important for us to know that when one is enlightened by the Spirit to trust in Jesus, there's a darkness that is recognized and felt that is lifted from the desperate sinner. A heavy weight of sin that the Spirit comes and removes. The baggage that we see, like talked about in Pilgrim's Progress, this, this heavy weight that is just removed from the sinner. To Jesus as the ransom, his cry, it is finished, is like a statement that says, the debt is paid. It's finished. The debt of sin is paid. We see here in this culture, in this situation that's happening, this is the day of preparation. On Friday, you're getting ready for the Sabbath. You're getting ready to celebrate. And so they're preparing, getting things ready. And here it is, the Friday before, this huge event of the Passover. All these substitutionary images of Jesus in our place as the Passover lamb, the debt-redeeming ransom. Tim Keller puts it this way, we cannot put love and sacrifice in opposition to one another because all love is a substitutionary sacrifice. Verse 30 is important for us to also see that he says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one took Jesus' life from him. No man had the power over him to take his life. He gave up his spirit willingly for you and I. And lastly, in these final moments are found in verse 31 to 37. 31 to 33 has the breaking of the bones. We see that in these moments, these religious leaders had shattered their own rules. Leading up to this death of Jesus on the cross, there were many rules that the Jewish leaders had on themselves that they broke. They disregarded. But in this moment, they're like, all right, Passover's coming. we got to celebrate. we got to get these guys off the cross. We can't have dead bodies hanging around on a cross when we're approaching Passover. We need to have them removed. And so here we have the breaking of the bones. It was a final blow to someone's life on the cross because they were pushing up on their feet to get a breath. They had to push to inhale a breath. And if their bones and their legs were broken, that pretty much accelerated their time on this earth to the point that they died because they couldn't push up to get a breath anymore. So they go to one criminal, break his legs. Go to the criminal on the other side, break his legs. But they come to Jesus and realize that he had already died. Once again, fulfilling scriptures saying that not one bone would be broken. Instead, Jesus willingly gave up his life and prophecy was fulfilled once again. And then lastly, we have the piercing of the side, the piercing of Jesus' side. John actually devotes four verses to this specific 
occurrence of his death. And it's kind of interesting that he includes four verses of this, but we believe that John was an eyewitness to this blood and water, and he wanted people to realize, look, I was there, and this isn't a trick. This isn't some scheme. This isn't some made-up thing to make Jesus look like the sacrificial lamb. This is for real. I watched it happen, and I saw the blood and water flow. It's also important to note that Jesus didn't die of a broken heart. Some people say, he died of a broken heart because of your sin. No. He died because he gave up his own life willingly for you. No one took that from him. He did it willingly because of your sin. So a man who has has done extensive study on this, Dr. Bergsma, says with some authority that it was most likely that Jesus' heart ruptured and hence this blood and water flowing out. So we think about this flowing water. We think about this occurrence of of not just blood coming out, but this water coming out, and it kind of gives us an image, again, of an Old Testament reference. You have Moses, who is back uh, leading the people, right? And you got Moses leading the people, and they're all getting along, right? And they never complained, right? Kind of like your kids, never complain. No, these people are complaining constantly about everything. And before we get on their case, most likely you and I'd be doing the same stinking thing, right? Complaining at this moment of being thirsty. They're thirsty. They're dying of thirst. You ever heard that? They're dying of thirst. And here they are, Moses, come on, get us something to drink. Have us out here in the wilderness. We're about to die. Please give us something to drink. So Moses goes once again to God and he says, man, we've got to hook these people up with some water. They're going to kill me here. So God says to them, all right, I want you to speak to this rock. And from this rock to show the power of God, I'm going to bring water out of this rock. So Moses, in anger and frustration, instead of speaking to the rock, takes that rod of his and slams it on the rock. But in his mercy, God allows water to still come out, still satisfying the people. But it's interesting for us to compare this to this thirst here. And this piercing of the side, say they were thirsty, but this rock led to a quenching of their thirst for the moment, right? It quenched their thirst for a moment. But the water that flowed from our Savior's side was a sign of the eternal quenching of our spiritual thirst. Instead of Moses' rod, a symbol of judgment and authority, striking the Israelites for their disobedience, it came down on the rock, which thus produced the water the people needed. In the same way, God's judgment against sin struck Jesus rather than us. The punishment that we deserved came down on his son, and from that came living water. That the woman at the well discovered when Jesus was talking with her, no, this isn't physical water. This is the water that never runs dry. The satisfying water our Savior. So in conclusion, I want us to just maybe read this quote together from Spurgeon that really helps us understand the cross. He says, stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you've been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark his scourge shoulders still gushing with crimson rills. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron. 
and his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. As we consider this death on the cross, of course, we can't leave Jesus dead. We do impact Bible clubs every summer, and we always encourage the students, hey, when you're telling this story, don't leave Jesus in the tomb. Because then he's just like anybody else. But the reality is he did not stay in that tomb. Three days later, he rose again, showing his power over death and the grave. And he rose again to be with his father. My challenge to you today, as you have considered the cross, is to consider your relationship with Jesus. What does this mean to you, that God would send his son Jesus to die in your place? What implications does that have on your life, but also maybe somebody in this room that doesn't know Jesus? Maybe you've seen, it for the, maybe for the first time, or maybe it's come alive to you once again, that, hey, you're being called into a relationship with Jesus. There's no better time than today to make that choice to follow Jesus, to answer that call and have new life in him. Let's pray. Dear God, we're so thankful as we just sit before you um, considering what you've done. Lord, I pray in this room today, Lord, that you will do a work in our hearts to convict us of our need to really understand what immense sacrifice you paid for us. I pray that in these moments right now, you will convict us of our need to confess before you, to acknowledge you as our Savior, to recommit maybe our lives to following you just like the disciples eventually got on board and saw the power of the resurrection and were changed forever. I pray that our lives will be changed forever because of looking at the cross. And I pray for those in here that may not know you, that you will just convict them even today to respond by trusting in you and saying, you know what, I'm done doing it on my own. I want to trust in you as my Savior, Jesus. Pray you'll bless our time as we sing together and as we take part in communion together. In your name we pray. Amen.